This is a Federal News Network podcast. Federal employees looking to appeal pay cuts or dismissals won't have to wait on the Merit Systems Protection Board much longer. The Senate last week confirmed two nominees to serve on the board, enough for the first quorum in more than five years. The board has a backlog, though, of thousands of appeals cases, but also a few tools and strategies to tackle them. Federal News Network's Jory Heckman joins me with more. There were three appointees, and they only went after two of them for some reason. Kathy Harris didn't make it. So so what do we know about Ray Lamone and Tristan Levitt? The two members that are on the board now are Ray Lamone, the Interior Department's former chief human capital officer, and Tristan Levitt was their general counsel and is now the other board member. Familiar with the board, familiar with how it operates. As you mentioned, we're waiting on a third and final board member who would be President Joe Biden's pick to be the chairwoman of the board. This is Kathy Harris, who is a longtime federal employment attorney, and her nomination remains pending. Well, at least there's a quorum now. What do we know about Ray Lamone? He's the chief human capital officer for the Interior Department, or he was at least, and so is very well versed in the, the world of you know federal employment law, the ins and outs there and is able to, you know, again, I think hit the ground running pretty well here, has the subject matter expertise to to know what's at stake here. All right. So we have a quorum and the board is going to have to tackle by some estimates 3,600 odd appeals cases that have been building up in the five years that there has not been a quorum. There have been two years without even a member. Mark Robbins left two years ago. He was alone on the board for a couple of years. Really weird. What do they do next? That's a really big question. There's this daunting backlog that lies before them. And so it doesn't necessarily have to be all that daunting. To keep it in context, just a portion of the workload that goes on at MSPB, administrative judges have been during this whole time without a quorum issuing initial decisions. But of course, what we're talking about here is cases where the employee or the agency isn't satisfied with that initial decision and they file a petition for review of that initial decision. And that is when it winds up on the caseload for this board. And now that it has a quorum, it can deal with those appeals cases. The big question now is, you know, where do they get started with that backlog? And there's a couple of strategies they could take here. They could do a first in, first out kind of process where the oldest cases are addressed first. That seems to be a, a pretty fair way of dealing with it if you're a federal employee who's been waiting five years for redress of your issue. Or if the board really wanted to, let's say, tackle all of the whistleblower complaints that have been piling up. And they could also take the ones that are simply the least complicated or the most cut and dried cases of law and maybe dispose of those very quickly because they have some support there. It's not like they're going to be looking at the files and opening them knowing nothing about them, correct? They are not starting from scratch here by any measure. Staff attorneys at MSPB, they have been drafting decisions for board members to go through on the understanding that there would someday be a quorum and then they would be able to take that kind of initial work and then issue a final decision here. And case in point, I spoke with Jim Eisenman, a former executive director and general counsel at MSPB. He says, based on kind of that support from the career staff, the board members in this case are really able to hit the ground running. I suspect there are thousands of opinions, draft opinions waiting for the two confirmed board members to start looking at and reviewing and then issuing. Yeah, there's kind of advice on the cover sheet for them. Here's what you might be able to do. And I guess they can also see what Mark Robbins left behind. He did decide on them, even though it was moot because he was the only member. But they could read his decisions and say, we like Mark. We'll just 
do what he did. I'm oversimplifying. What other what other tools? Yeah, well, you mentioned earlier about they could kind of start with the easiest cases first, the kind of no-brainers here in cases where both board members in this case agree on the decision and they are unanimous in that decision. That's actually uh, another real key strategy here that we're probably going to see play out. The board is able to issue two different varieties of decisions. It can issue a short form opinion on a case in which they basically say, this is how we're ruling. And they really don't say a whole lot else, or they issue a full-blown precedential opinion, which it's many pages, it unpacks the case in minute detail, and they you know, appreciate all the problems, the legal problems that are being addressed here, and they are then issuing their opinion saying that this is a big opinion, this is a precedent, and this is going to be something that we're going to circle back to time and again. This is going to have weight for future decisions. And so what the board's going to be able to do is do a lot of these short form decisions where they say, yep, this is how we're going to rule on this. And this is going to be a really good way to clear down this backlog. I did speak with Mark Robbins, the last MSPB board member. Like you said, he has a really unique perspective on this. And he says that the short form opinions uh, could probably actually cut the backlog roughly in half in a pretty short period of time. That's a little like getting up on a Saturday morning, knowing you've got eight chores to do over the weekend. And you, you take the four of them that are real easy and you do them quickly and then you say, oh, look, I've gotten four of my eight done, but the other four are the ones that are going to take some heavy lifting. So it's a little bit of a numbers game, but but there's there's a bit of psychology there. It's it's nice to know you've, you've tackled quite a bit of the backlog. And in terms of individual uh, appellants, you will have rendered the decision that they were waiting for, and the ones that are still waiting are the ones with the more um, complicated cases. Yeah, so get the no-brainers out of the way, like you say, first, Jory, and then have the time to get to the tough ones. What else? And just as a counterpoint here, Eisenman says, yes, the short-form opinions are going to be a great way to clear the backlog. And it was his idea to see more of those short-form opinions happen here. But he says that to be an advocate for the federal employees here, this might be some cold comfort to wait all this time and get a very terse response from the board. I think there's a real good chance that we're going to see those short-form decisions coming back. It's just an easier way of getting those decisions out to the parties. And I suspect when people get those decisions, having waited a while will not be happy because they don't necessarily know why they lost. Right. So that is to say that the easy ones are where the board agrees with the administrative law judges. Sorry, you're out of luck. And you could have waited years to find out that they agree. Have you heard from any of the federal management groups on this yet, Jory? Quite a bunch of them. They've been very vocal about this. And they are, on one hand, very excited that there is now a quorum on the board. But on the other hand, I think really reflective on the damage that has been done from the long-term absence of a quorum and recognizing that there is some damage done here that will be not easy to undo in the short term. We heard from Chad Hooper, who is the executive director of the Professional Managers Association, which represents IRS managers. He says that the lack of a quorum over the past five years has meant that IRS supervisors in some cases, have been left in a state of limbo, waiting years to get some final redress on their issues here. He also says that in cases where there are these pending decisions before the board, one of the things is that if the board does reinstate an employee, they are supposed to get their job back. And so there are just kind of temporary holding places for employees on the off chance that they might come back. So that is one challenge there. 
We also heard from Bob Corsi, who's the president of the Senior Executives Association. He did make a really interesting point here that for about 80% of the cases that MSPB receives, they do side with the agency. But for that, you know, roughly not quite 20% of cases, he says that employees are reinstated because the board determines that the agency made a mistake and violated an employee's rights. That 20%, that's a, a really big thing to leave unaddressed for this long period of time. All right. So repercussions with a board. We're going to love it. We're going to hate it, but we're going to see some changes. Federal News Network's Jory Heckman. Thanks so much. Thanks, Tom. Check out his story and my column on the same topic at federalnewsnetwork.com. Hello and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. And today I'm thrilled to be joined by Melissa Bradley, the founder and managing partner at 1863 Ventures, an investment company focused on bridging entrepreneurship and racial equity and accelerating new majority entrepreneurs from high potential to high growth. Additionally, Melissa is co-founder of Venture Back Eureka, a community where small businesses gain unprecedented access to the expertise needed to grow their businesses and has more than 20 years of entrepreneurship, investment, and leadership experience. Melissa, welcome and thank you for being here. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. Who is the first person that you remember looking up to as a leader and what was it about them that inspired you? So there are actually two people. Um, the first person personally was my mom. Uh, she was a single parent. And what I realized is that she was a leader of our household, but she was also the leader of our community. Um, she was a staunch advocate for children's rights in public schools, making sure that we got a quality education. She was a staunch advocate around rights for renters. Um, we were not in a financial position that we actually ever owned a home, uh, but she made sure that people who lived in various types of housing, we were in regular housing, the people who were in regular housing, public housing, she made sure that their rights were advocated for um, and really just always kind of looked out for, I'll, I'll use air quotes, the little guy, while although we were the little guy. Uh, and then I would say she was a huge advocate of older folks. Um, as part of her job, she worked during the week uh, in a full-time job and then cleaned houses on the weekend, but also took care of elderly folks and a staunch advocate for elderly rights. Um, so that was probably the, the first leader. And then I would say the second leader that really came about professionally was a woman named Crystal, Crystal Gaskins, uh, who actually ran a headhunting temporary firm that I ended up spending about a year at, but quickly realized that was not my calling. But in a world where you are constantly managing the powers that be that want to hire all these people and move people around and the folks who are sometimes in vulnerable positions and obviously seeking a job, she would always manage to treat everyone with the, with the ultimate respect. And part of the business was actually um, managing hotels and getting service workers to show up. And that's a tough job, right, to try to motivate people who barely are getting paid enough under not great conditions. Um, and so she taught me three things. She taught me how to be a motivator and that recognizing leadership is not mandating, but motivating. She taught me that leadership is not just reporting up, but also reflecting and supporting those who may be underneath you from a hierarchical structure. And she also taught me that leadership was not about money, uh, but it was about producing positive outcomes for whoever your customers were. And if you did that, then obviously the money would come. How would you describe your leadership style? 
And how has that developed over the years? I would describe it, hashtag work in progress. Um, it, it has evolved over the years, I think, two ways. One, the more people I've been exposed to in leadership positions have certainly helped me pivot and make adjustments. And then certainly as my leadership roles have elevated and probably as the more people I've been responsible for has elevated, uh, you know, certainly being managing partner and founder of 1863 Ventures, we manage a lot of people. We have actually tripled our staff this year. And so we went from three people to oh, actually 12 people plus and growing. Uh, and we went from a couple hundred members to almost 10,000 members. And that's a big deal. Um, I, so my leadership style has evolved in terms of more people that I have reporting to me. I think it's, I, I focus on autonomy. I focus, I'm, I'm very clear that my role is to help other people be successful. Uh, I do set very clear deadlines. I am try to do a good job of kind of projecting what is the overall mission and vision, what are the KPIs and OKRs that we need to hit. And then I feel like I need to get out the way. I need not be a micromanager. I need to recognize, particularly since COVID, that people have kids, they have lives, they have ways that they know how they perform best. And so we now have people who work for me all over the world. And as long as we made our deliverables, I don't need to know that you're sitting in a cubicle or sitting at your computer from nine to five. Um, and that's because I've been at those nine to five jobs where I literally had nothing to do, but I knew I was told I had to be in the office. Uh, and it just seemed like a complete waste of time. And so I'm really laser focused on outcomes and productivity and advancing the vision and mission and not on what does it look like? Because I think a successful work looks different for everyone. And then I would say more externally, as we now have grown to lots of members and we have a social media presence and I talk to people, I'm mindful that the, the probably the most important from an external uh, perspective on my leadership is that I am mindful that I am modeling not just for myself, but particularly for other leaders and particularly Black women and certainly gay black women. Uh, you know, there are not a lot of us. Um, you know, you mentioned that I'm a co-founder of Eureka. So I'm fortunate enough to be in the first 30 or so black women that have been supported through venture capital, which is a sad statistic, but for a different topic. And so I'm mindful that people are always watching me. And I would say that certainly as a black woman, people are always watching you, not always for the better and cheering you on, but waiting for you to make a mistake and slip up. And so I'm mindful that when I step into a room or I show up somewhere, I'm not just representing Melissa Bradley and my immediate family. I'm representing all of my members and potentially sending a single effect of what other people are going to expect as black women. And the final thing I would say that definitely has evolved since now that I'm over 50 uh, is that I feel a much greater freedom to say what's on my mind um, than I did before. And I, and I do that. I probably said what was on my mind before, but in a way that was reflective of my frustration and anger with the system. And now I say it with the, expect, with the level of calmness and the expectation that it's important that we are honest around what do Black communities experience, and to phrase it in a way not based on anger, but really using data. And so I would say I've consistently been a staunch advocate for Black and Brown communities, but has evolved from being very reactive and saying, well, don't do this and don't do that, to saying, let me explain to you why I think it's important that we take this up and really letting the facts drive the discussion. Some of that probably comes from the fact that I've worked in two presidential administrations, and we all know that that just goes back and forth and often 
oftentimes based on rhetoric and not fact. And having six kids in a world of social media, I think there's something, the, the art of, of conversation based on facts and data has devolved to uh, opinions and pundits. And, and I think that's a challenge around leadership because your job is not, in my mind, to convince people, but to inform people and allow them to make decisions for themselves. I, I saw you on a post uh, with a Washington Post um, uh, interview, and it, it, you were amazing. And it, it's interesting to listen to you describe what you just said, because I could see all of that reflected in how you responded there. And um, make one other quick uh, comment about as a company grows, WEPA is growing as well. And you are so spot on. We have, as, as leaders, we have to let go and trust those people that work for us and empower them to do their job and then let them roll. And that's not always easy. Want more ways to show your good side to the world? Donate plasma at a Griffles Center and join thousands of donors who are helping to save lives. Receive up to $1,000 your first month. Learn more at grifflesplasma.com. Love Target? Well, you're about to love it even more. With Target's Red Card Debit Card, you'll save 5% every Target trip, on top of everyday low prices, in-store and online. Debit Red Card links from your existing bank account. Visit Target.com slash Red Card to get all the details. Restrictions apply. 